It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome! This is the fourth episode of the Dare to Unlead podcast. Across 11 episodes, we explore with different guests the major themes addressed in the book. Myron Rogers introduced us in episode one to living system theory applied to organizations and Stove Boyd challenged in episode two our fascination for leadership. In episode three, Jeff Boudreaux talked about the dynamics that take place in human systems with great regularity and that can impede our capacity for change. Oops, I said the C word, change. <laughs> Do you consider yourself a change maker, a change leader, a change agent, a corporate rebel? Well, then this episode is for you. It echoes chapter four of the book, which is titled It Starts With Oneself on Becoming a Change Agent. I believe it is useful to examine this role closely, to deconstruct it even a little. What does it mean to be a change maker? What are the pitfalls rebels most often face? And how much of this comes from themselves? How can they be more successful? The very first person I thought of for this conversation is Lois Kelly, the co-founder with Carmen Medina of Rebels at Work. Together, they wrote a handbook for leading change from within, extremely useful book, which title is Rebels at Work. Lois is an artist, an author. Her books, Naked Hearted and Beat a Noodle, are in her image, both profound and sensitive. Her leadership consulting practice is grounded in Lois's long corporate experience in executive roles and her acute understanding of human behaviors. Lois is a person of great intelligence and great humanity, a woman who has inspired me enormously to this date and whom I have long considered a mentor. We first met online about 10 years ago. Then in person, several times when I settled near where she lives in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. I no longer live in the U.S., but we met again to my great pleasure recently on my book tour. And today, I am absolutely delighted to have you on the show, Lois. Welcome. Thank you so much, Celine. What a lovely introduction. Lois, I'll ask with the first question I ask uh, all my guests on this show. What is your art? What is the professional practice that you would describe as unique to you or that you perform in a unique way? What is your art, Lois? I think my art is observation and listening. Throughout my career in different roles, I've always observed emerging trends things that were, you know, kind of building and about to happen. And, and people say, well, how, how, how are you onto that? And I think it's reading, talking to different people, just kind of expanding 
your awareness and network and then beginning to, to see patterns and what the implications of those patterns might be. Mm. So that's my favorite thing. And there are some years where in my career, I've been very quiet. You know, I haven't been writing or speaking. And it's because I'm observing. You know, I'm looking. And I think when things are changing, sometimes we have to be very quiet to pick up the signals and to listen to other people. And that's what gives me most satisfaction in my work. Mm, that's awesome. And what, what led you to this? Well, I was trained as a journalist. So starting when I was in high school, I worked for a local newspaper in Boston, but it was an award-winning newspaper. And the editor and publisher were wonderful people. And the more I asked, well, could I write that? Could I learn how to take these pictures? They took me under their wings and they taught me how to ask good questions. And I think asking good questions and making people feel comfortable when you ask those questions, that's how you get information. That's how you get insights. That's how you learn. So when I graduated from college, I was offered a job as a journalist and the pay was so low and I had so many student loans that I took a job in corporate for AT&T. But I always, that, that foundation of journalism, you know, asking questions, seeing patterns, and communicating in ways that were, people could understand what you were saying. Those have been lifelong skills. Mm. Did you enjoy the corporate world? And if yes, uh, why are you no longer there? <laughs> um, there were... There were some things I enjoyed about the corporate world. I, I had some amazing experiences and some very frustrating experiences. And, you know, when I was young, I, I, I'm a fire starter. So I'm not a good project manager, detail oriented. I mean, I could certainly have done that, but I like the ideas and the creative part of things. And I was young. And I was making a speech to 200 AT&T executives. My knees were all cut up from, I had fallen rollerblading in Central Park. But, you know, it was a, it was a fascinating speech. And even then, I think I was 23, maybe 24. And I was talking about what could be different. And the president of the company came up to me afterwards. And he said, you seem and this is the language, like a very smart young girl with a lot of ideas. And I'm going to give you some advice. You should either go into sales or you should head up to Madison Avenue. Because if you're responsible for revenue and you're bringing in revenue, people will listen to your ideas. And he said, I can see that you're an idea person. You have to establish your credibility for people to accept your ideas, which was some of the best advice I got. You know, if we're not credible, people are less likely to listen to us. I mean, it's fundamental. So I went to Madison Avenue and I, and I did. I, I made lots of money for agencies and I had a lot of creative freedom. And so most of my 
working life was in um, big agencies. And then? And then I started my own practice. I, you know, and part of it, and, and, and I wish I could tell you that there was some strategic plan, but I was, you know, I was working for a company. It had just been sold to a bigger company. I was commuting three and a half hours a day. I had an infant and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it all, quite frankly. So I left without a plan, except knowing what I really liked, what I was really good at. And I had really wonderful relationships with my clients and CEOs. So I was able to kind of build a business around strategic communications pretty quickly. Hmm. And how did you come to this, the theme for which you are pretty famous uh, today, which is the corporate rebel? How does this theme touches you? Yeah, um, you know, I w again, I wish I could say there was a master plan. And this is why <laughs> I encourage everybody like to just serendipity and listening and observing how you respond to things are often giving you clues. And with rebels, I was at a business innovation conference in Providence and the next to the last speaker was Carmen Medina. And she was talking about being a heretic at the CIA and how hard it is to, to create change inside large organizations. And the conference was all entrepreneurs and, you know, people who were CEOs. And her point was, it's easy when you're head of the company, you know, to talk about change. When you are in it or in the belly of the beast, it's much more difficult. And that, there's something, I was sitting in the audience and it just spoke to me. And I, and I just said, yes, this is a huge issue that no one is addressing that I had experienced so often. And I marched down to the, you know, to the front of the room and introduced myself to Carmen. And I said, we should really get together and talk because there's something here. And, you know, we started talking and, you know, we said, well, we don't know. Would people care about this or not? And we decided to just start writing, you know, a blog and, and see where it went. And it went far, right? It's a huge pent up, you know, people have so many amazing ideas, so much frustration about not being heard and really looking at how do you make work meaningful and it's being heard and contributing as you've written about so much. Do you think a corporate rebel can thrive in an organization or are they, are they doomed to be unhappy and frustrated? You know, I, I, think, I think, A, it depends on the organization. If it's a toxic culture, obviously, you need to get out of that as fast as you can. But I, I think it's choosing your battles. You know, you can't solve everything. You can't fix every problem. Um, if you become one of those people who complains about everything or says there's a better way, you'll be miserable and no one will listen to you. So I think it's really understanding where you can provide the most value and what things you just, you need to step back and let someone else fix them or simply decide they're not going to be the things that you worry about. 
And I think it's really important to find small moments of joy in your work. You know, there are a lot of frustrating things about bureaucracy and, you know, the latest procurement system you need to use and, you know, meetings popping up on your calendar when you feel exhausted already. But what can you do to really find those moments of joy? It would be mindfulness, you know, to just take a moment to relax, you know, to turn off the worry brain, to turn off the anxiety. And most importantly, to know that you can change things at work, but you can't necessarily change people. I think when when I see people and they're blaming, it's like, well, my boss does this or my coworker does this. And they 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 build up this, this narrative of it's all everyone else's problem. You will be miserable then. Do you think we can make our manager happy or our manager's manager happy or HR happy and bring about change at the same time? Or are they incompatible? What do you recommend? Well, I mean, I think that it's looking at what's important to the organization and what is valued. And that's what people will pay attention to. And if it's not valued or important, I would say, I think you'll be very frustrated and unhappy and you will make other people unhappy. So it's, it's really understanding, you know, what's possible. I think it's presenting ideas as invitations versus threats. I think when our boss or HR feel that they're, they're threatened, they're going to say no and you will be very unhappy. Um, so I think that's important. I think the spirit that you do things, you know, if you're a positive person, if you have optimism, if you're kind, you're happy, people gravitate to you and they're more likely to say yes. And again, it's because you're not a threat. You know, our brains are wired to look for threats. So if we appear threatening, people are going to shut down before we even have an opportunity, you know, to su suggest new approaches. So I, I, you know, I just see when I think of my career, those times where I was very strident did not work. And those other initiatives where I thought, well, this is kind of an adventure. You know, let's see what could happen here. You know, and, and to ask people, how might we do this? How could it be better? How could it be even people sort of like, yeah, how could it? And you're inviting the collaboration that you write about. But it's, just, it's an invitation. And I think when you show up that way, our emotions are contagious. So sometimes I think the only way I've changed people is by making this sense of possibility and fun infectious for a team. I mean, it's so simple, but it's, it, it's amazing what can happen. So even when you say no, if you can say no in a fun way, like, you know, are you kidding me? And laugh about it. It, 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 changes, it changes the environment. Hmm. I wish I heard the, those advice earlier on. <laughs> well, I mean, we all do. And I think we, we look at changes like very serious. Mm -hmm. For most of us, I mean, I'm sure some listeners may be, you know, in the healthcare field. And if it is, 
making vaccines or, or neuroscience, obviously it is very serious. But for most things in work, it's not life or death. And, you know, save that for when it is life or death. <laughs> I kind of sense that from your earlier responses. But what are the main uh, dangers that change agents face, in your opinion? I think one is just complete burnout and stress. Mm. And when you get exhausted and when you are so frustrated, your ideas and your creativity actually diminish. You know, so self-care, self-compassion, rest will make you more creative. It will make you more strategic. You know, that's the biggest thing that I see. And when people get really stressed, I think they begin to alienate people. You know, people just don't even want to see you. It's like, go away. You know, you're, you're angry, you're bitter, or people play the victim. I've seen, you know, the victim. My boss won't let me do this, or my budget was cut. Poor me, poor me, poor me. And then you're not being effective at all. It's also a good excuse sometimes. Uh, yes. You have all sorts of impediments. I mean, this narrative where we are not responsible, but the right. world is responsible yes. for not changing, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And, and I mean, and there's some things, and again, it's, you know, I think the image I like is if you're pushing a boulder up a hill, up a hill, you know, and it's huge and it's not going anywhere. Sometimes you just have to step aside and let that boulder go and decide not to worry about it, let it go. And when I get in situations where I see myself worrying obsessively about an issue or a person, worry is not a productive behavior. Anxiety is not a productive emotion. To just, you know, I say to myself, boulder, which is code for let it go. You know, I, I think it's helpful to look at what, what emotions are driving you and what behaviors are associated and are they productive and helpful or are they negative and exhausting? I really appreciate that sort of advice and I, it, it is very different from the sort of forced happiness that we sometimes uh, feel, you know, uh, obliged to in, in the corporate world, right? This is not the same thing at all. Right. And I, and I think it's, I think in the corporate world, it's important to be able to express, and this gets into constructive or difficult conversations, you know, behavior that and how we feel about it and how we would like it to change. I had someone once in every conversation we had, she would yawn. And I found myself getting very angry. And I, you know, just said, every time we we're in a conversation, it seems as though you yawn, which makes me feel like you don't care about what I'm saying. And it's, you know, it's very irritating to me. And she had no idea, you know, but it's like little things like that where we, we just have to have those difficult conversations in corporate world, but do it with being specific, talking about our feelings, asking people for 
what you would like to see for small changes versus bottling things up. Yeah. You know, the, uh, it makes me think of the, the little cartoon where uh, when asked who wants change, you know, the whole crowd uh, raises their hand. But when asked uh, who wants to lead change, no one does. I actually think this cartoon is actually a, a little bit misleading. The question that really generates change, in my opinion, and that few people put their hands up uh, for is who is willing to change themselves? Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think that's huge. And we, we have to always be growing. You know, the world is changing. Our environment is changing. And I think changing ourselves and changing, you know, a problem at work, it's about curiosity. And changing ourselves is like, why is this situation so annoying to me? Why do I continually get triggered by this individual or this boss? So it's changing yourself And it's also then you, this sense of curiosity, how, if I approach this differently, might things go? So yes, we, we always have to be learning and changing. And I think curiosity is the key. When I look at situations or people in, you know, who want to be rebels or change people, I look at how curious they are about themselves, about other people. And if the curiosity isn't there, A, I know they'll be ineffective, and B, I kind of look at them as bad rebels because mm -hmm. they're doing it in too narrow of a way. You know, they might have a fixed mindset if they're not curious. And I think curiosity is the great motivator. And how do you develop that? I, I mean, you're an extremely creative person, so I imagine curiosity comes naturally to you. Can it come naturally to everyone? Or are, are there practices to develop it? I think there are practices. I think, you know, some people collect, I don't know, they collect different things. I collect questions. I think when you have good questions that speak to you, that open you up, when I get stuck or I'm starting to feel complacent, you know, I, I kind of go to some of my questions. Like, I, I love the question, what would it take for, what would it take for me to really get this book idea finished? What would it take for this organization to get one important thing done a year? For me, like that, what would it take for is, is, is a really helpful question. And the other one that I like is, how could this be even better? How could this be even better? So if you use that in a work situation, it's not coming at it from a negative perspective, but it's a positive one. How could this organization be even better this year? It invites people to think differently versus how do we fix this or what problems are we going to? So I would say questions and to just sometimes when you're looking at, I like when people are disagreeing to just look at what's being said and what's being unsaid and look underneath conversations for what do people really value? What's important to people or not? 
So I think those are very helpful. You know, when one of the things someone once asked me, well, why do your proposals always get bought? And I said, well, I listen to what's really important. I listen to what people really value. I listen to what they feel threatened by and how they want to feel. And I think if we listen for those things, we grow and we provide more value because we understand the situation much better. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And uh, in addition to your collection of questions, I suppose that the practice of art or like photography or writing is also extremely important for you, at least, right? It is. Those things are also observation. I mean, I think that's why I enjoy them so much is it's being fully present and observing. In my, some of the writing I haven't released yet, it's more creative writing. And I found that what I'm especially good at there is dialogue because I'm always listening. You know, I like to sometimes go to a restaurant and sit at the bar by myself and listen to conversations or with photography or art, how you see the world, you know, you're fully present seeing it. You're turning off your noisy brain. I think that's important in work too, that we're fully present, not thinking about what we want to say next or what we want to push forward, but being fully present and listening and really hearing people. I think it can help us move things forward and it can prevent a lot of suffering. In the book, I quote uh, Donna Latkin, who says, we need to end our romance with leaders, mm -hmm. the romanticization of leadership. Do you feel we romanticize the figure of change makers? In many ways, we do. I think they're positioned as heroes. Mm. And as we know, no one person is responsible for that. But I, I think it's just a narrative in our Western society about You know, someone's going to write in and save the day. And, it, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And I think also with change makers, it's, it's really, it's a long slog. I mean, you've written about that. It's easy to have an idea. It's very long and challenging to make those ideas real. And it takes many, many people. So, yeah, I, I just, I don't like the idea of, of heroes and lone rangers. I think it's dangerous and it's, it's um, no one can do it by themselves. I mean, it is collaboration. I think it's inviting people in and different people contribute different things. And it's also joining other people's movements or ideas and not just about our own, right? Exactly. I mean, some of the most thrilling things is when you can say, how can I help? Yeah. You know, something that's already happening. And some people say, well, I don't have any ideas. I'm like, well, how can you help? And I had a, a client and he was, he was the finance. I mean, in, in the organization, he wasn't like the main decision maker, but he was the finance person and he was so helpful in making things happen because he knew how to rearrange budgets 
and how to get the money. And I'm like, he needs to be on the team because he knows what can be approved, what won't be approved, what quarter we can do, whatever. And he's like, well, I'm not a change agent. And I'm like, you most certainly are. You know, it's not a change agent, but it's being part of the change team. So I think there are all kinds of roles and we need them all. And we need all the personalities and the different ideas. And I even think I always love, appreciate the naysayers on people who say why it won't work. (laughs) And rather than trying to convince them why it will, it's so helpful to listen and ask them, why won't it? Because they're giving you data that's not always helpful, but many times it is. Mm. You know? That's amazing. Mm. Yeah, super, uh, super useful. What can we, that would be my, my last question, maybe just one more after that, but what can we do to change ourselves to change the system? If we take it in that order, if you agree that's a, a valuable order to approach things. I, I think it's one of the things is, I don't know if this is changing ourselves, but I think it's like, what is easy? You know, what's easy to do? Because when we ourselves, when we can begin to do easy things and see results, it kind of gives us energy to keep going. And we're learning from that easiness. I also think it's important, like, how do we make it easy for people to say yes? One of the things my bosses always said to me, and then my clients, they said, you make it so easy for me. So how do we make it easy? How do we have some ease for ourselves so we, again, reframe things that it's an adventure. It's... You know, and I love that whole like adventure spirit to things because it's not fixed. And it's like in an adventure story, things happen. I mean, we've all had those vacations from hell where everything went wrong. And those are the things we remember. It was like an adventure. We, But we figured it out and we have a story to tell. So I think we can change ourselves by understanding our mindset, by managing our anxiety so that it doesn't manage us. And by bringing a sense of always curiosity to why is why did that work? Or why do some people really embrace what I'm saying and other people shut down? What can I learn from that? So I, I really think this curiosity, I know I'm hammering on this, but I think it's so essential to growth. It's so accessible to us and it helps us in many, many different ways in our lives. I love that. Yeah. Change doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, grunt and and, and dramatic and painful. Uh, Myron Rogers, who is the guest on episode one, speaks about playful tinkering. I love that. Yeah, I do too. I love that. (laughs) Playful tinkering. I I, I I think it's it's fabulous. Uh, Thank you so much, Louise. What would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think what's so valuable about this book is that the context of our world is changing rapidly. And in the book, you present sort of new leadership principles for a world with, with a different context, where so many leadership principles are based, I believe, on a different context of a different time. And we're in a time of rapid change. You know, when people say, oh, what's your three or five year plan? I burst out laughing, you know, because who knows? So I, I think your principles open us up to, to how quickly our world is changing, how much we have to be together in asking, you know, what is it going to take in this moment in, in inviting people in to collaborate together? I, I'm so happy to see kind of a breath of fresh air and the whole notion of unleading and that there's a leader or a hero or a change agent. We are all in this together. And, you know, in, in doing it together, you know, that's where the meaning and, the, and even some of the fun amid the frustrations can come. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lois. It was a, a wonderful conversation. The, um, all the links and where people can find you and the titles of your books, etc., will be posted, are posted in the podcast description. Uh, it's been uh, an immense pleasure for me, as always, to chat with you, Lois. Let's uh, keep in touch and do that again in the near future. Thank, Thank you, Celine. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together.